Coming at you from historic New Brunswick, New Jersey, this is the Matt Ward History Experience. My name's Matt Ward, and I'll be your tour guide today. This month's episode of the Matt Ward History Experience features a segment of Let's Talk History that was recorded on location in Matawan, New Jersey. The Matt Ward History Experience is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. One Stone Recording and Mastering is online at onestonerecording.com. We're going to start off the eighth episode of the Matt Ward History Experience with a segment of Let's Talk History from Matawan, New Jersey. This month's interview is with author, historian, and fellow American Legion Post 176 member Al Savlin. During this interview, we were able to discuss the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks and Al's new book, Stanley Fisher, Shark Attack Hero of a Bygone Age. Without further delay, here it is. Let's talk history. Please introduce yourself to my listeners. Okay, my name is uh, Al Savlin. I'm the Madawan Town Historian and also the historian for uh, Rose Hill Cemetery. And I've just written a book uh, about Madawan's hero. And the title of the book is Stanley Fisher, Shark Attack Hero of a Bygone Age. When did you become interested in the 1916 Madawan shark attacks? Actually, uh, I went to Gettysburg College years ago, back in the early 60s. And living and going to school at Gettysburg, at that point, I really became a history buff, very serious history buff in so many ways. I heard about the 1916 uh, shark attacks uh, in general, that this had happened was it was very unusual at that time and several people died, but I didn't really know too much about the Matawan incident here at Matawan Creek until I, I moved to Matawan uh, almost about 45 years ago, back in the early 1970s. And I joined the Matawan Historical Society and uh, I met people who actually, uh, their parents had told them about the shark attack, their grandparents had told them about the shark attack, and about this young man, Stanley Fisher, who was very, very brave, and he was very valiantly trying to uh, recover the, the body of a young boy, Lester Stilwell, who was 11 years old. And in the, in the process of this, uh, the same shark attacked him. And uh, he suffered severe wounds, and just a few hours later, that same day, he died. And he was a very, very popular uh, young man in town, very talented, a, a, a wonderful singer, uh, a successful businessman, good-looking, everything in the world going for him. And he died in such a strange and tragic set of circumstances. That fascinated me. Then through the years, uh, I became more involved in the Madawan Historical Society, and I, I had different historical projects like my cemetery tours. And on the cemetery tours at Rose Hill, I would talk about Stanley Fisher and other participants in the shark attack. So I, during those years, I tried to collect information about Stanley. And I started to see him as a person. And the culmination of this is the biography that I just wrote about Stanley Fisher. But it's been fun for me for decades. Can you tell us a little bit more about Lester Stilwell? Okay. Here's one of the... A lot of people in the 21st century today would find this particular aspect rather unusual. Stanley Fisher came from one of the wealthiest, most prominent families in town. Lester Stilwell came from one of the poorest families in town. His father worked at uh, the Anderson Basket Factory, and even during the summer, uh, the Stilwell boys, Lester, uh, who was uh, 11 years old at the time, and his two older brothers, uh, Russell and Harry, also worked to provide money uh, piecemeal making peach baskets for the family. And uh, Lester also had uh, a medical condition, a form of epilepsy, which in those days they called the shakes, which uh, Stanley was aware of, the friends were aware of, and they would, whenever this would happen, they would try to, you know, protect Lester so that he would hurt himself. But Stanley was always afraid that if Lester had one of these incidents uh, in the water, it could be fatal. And that was one thing that was kind of unusual, one of, the, one of the wealthiest, most prominent people in town, being so concerned and so careful, so protective of someone who is, you know, someone who didn't have these advantages. Was anyone else attacked and not killed by the shark? Yes. 
The shark attacks that happened in 1916, there were a series of five shark attacks, and they're still considered as record breakers in, world, in the study of uh, shark history. Uh, the first shark attack happened July 1st in Beach Haven, New Jersey. A young man from Philadelphia, his name was Charles Van Zandt, was attacked by a shark while in, in shallow waters while he was kind of moving in from the surf and took a horrendous you know, gash out of his leg and they were able to bring him out of the surf but he died a few hours later actually on uh, the manager's desk on the Angleside Hotel. Well, you know, a very nice hotel in, in Beach Haven. And at that time most people weren't quite sure this was a shark. In fact, it was even mentioned some, at some points in the paper that it was a sea turtle. And they just didn't want to really admit that a shark could do this, this type of damage. That happened on July 1st. Uh, on July 2nd in Beach Haven, I'm sorry, in uh, Spring Lake, which is about 43 miles north of Beach Haven, uh, the bell captain at the Essex and Sussex Hotel was attacked. He was taking his afternoon swim and he was attacked by a shark. At this particular time, both of his legs were cut off below the knees. The shark actually bit off his legs and he died before they could actually get him into shore. Immediately, he bled to death. And now they're starting to wonder, they're not quite so sure it may be a shark. Some of the scientists are still questioning, you know, this is very, very unusual, the shark doing it. In fact, many marine uh, scientists did not believe that a shark was capable of biting, actually biting through human bones. So they were still kind of at a point of denial. Now investigators were getting interested in this, but things seems to pass. A few days later, on July 12th, now we have three attacks in Manawan, New Jersey. The first attack happened with a young boy, Lester Stilwell, and, and then the person trying to recover his body. The second attack happened uh, a couple hours later when Stanley Fisher was trying to recover Lester's body. He was attacked, had a huge gash taken out of his leg, severed the artery, almost 10 pounds of flesh taken out of his leg between the knee and the hip, that he dies within in a few hours of the attack. And the shark is still moving back towards the direction of the mouth of Madelon Creek. There's a third shark attack. There were th uh, three boys swimming. There was uh, a boy from New York. His name was Joseph Dunn. He was 12 years old. His older brother, uh, you know, Michael Dunn, was uh, 14. And they had a, a, a family friend who was actually from Matawan. This incident happened at the New Jersey Clay Company Brickyard, which is really between the town of Matawan and Keyport. But uh, their friend, uh, Jerry Hoovahan, was swimming with them too. And all of a sudden, once the, some of the, uh, the action was coming, they, were, they could hear off in the distance, shark attack, get out of the water, get out of the water. And they, they try to get out of the water as this boat is approaching. And the two older boys jump up on the wharf. The, the third boy, Joseph Dunn, is trying to climb up. The shark grabs his leg, you know, crunches down his leg, pulls him back to the center of Matawan Creek. And now the two older boys, his brother, uh, you know, uh, uh, Michael Dunn and uh, Jerry Houlihan jump back in the water. Uh, close by, there are two men in, in a boat, uh, Captain Cottrell. He was the person who first saw the shark coming under the trolley bridge to try to warn people there's a shark coming in the direction of Madelon Creek, but nobody believed him. And also was an attorney with him. His name was Jacob Lefferts. Lefferts sees what's happening with the boys in the water. He jumps in the water with his clothes on and now, you know, uh, the, the two boys and Jacob Lefferts are able to get uh, Joseph away from the shark now, and they try to bring him up. He has a severe wound, but he, he does survive the shark attack. They take him back to the old Wyckoff Dock area because there are medical people already down there. And uh, in fact, a doctor from uh, Keyport, his name is Dr. Herbert Cooley, is there. Uh, Dr. Reynolds has gone with Sammy Fisher up to the Madeline train station. They decided to take him down to Matawan because he was, he was still alive and they were afraid to take him to St. Peter's Hospital in New Brunswick because they didn't have paved roads. And if they were bumping up and down with a severed artery, um, he would die before he even got out of the, you know, the town limits of Matawan. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're up at the Matawan train station. Now they're treating Joseph down there and his wounds aren't quite, they're, they're severe, but they're, they're not quite as bad. The artery isn't severed, the, the tissue damage isn't as bad, and the bottom part of his leg is shredded, and it's, very, it's severe, and it's, it's certainly not a minor incident. But they decide, in this particular case, they're gonna take him by car, automobile, up to uh, uh, St. Peter's Hospital. And he's actually in St. Peter's Hospital 
uh, from uh, July 12th up until uh, September when he's released. And they're, yeah. they're not sure if he's going to make it, but they were able to contain the wound. He was in hospital setting. He does survive. And when he leaves, he's walking with a little bit of a limp, but he's the only survivor of the Jersey shark attacks of 1916. The first four people died, and the last person who was severely wounded survived. Are, are you aware of what happened to Joseph Dunn after the no, shark attacks? No, we don't. In fact, Joseph Dunn was from New York City, and I read an article in the Madawan Journal. The father was a very private type of person, and Pete, he was getting question, er, uh, letters from literally all over the world, all over the U.S., and he was being overwhelmed by this. And the Dunn family, uh, they, they were not thrilled with this. They were more a private family. Now everybody in the world is, is coming asking things. And he actually had to go to the newspapers and say, please, don't send any more letters. Well, we understand your, and we thank you for your letters, but we're being overwhelmed. And I cannot answer all of these letters. And uh, the publicity wasn't helping here. So after he was released from the hospital, he actually kind of disappears from history. He's no longer... Uh, uh, once this kind of moves forward, uh, he's no longer, you know, the, uh, a celebrity. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the way the family wanted it. And he, he later, later will die, uh, you know, kind of a, an anonymous type death. But uh, the, the story after that really we, we can't describe. Wow. By choice on their part. <laughs> <laughs> what type of shark is believed to attack the men and children during the shark attacks? Okay. Now, this is one of those instances, I always, I always tell people whenever I get that question, there are probably two categories of people who are extremely stubborn, who will argue about anything up until doomsday, is will be uh, scientists, they're very stubborn about the theories, and historians, <laughs> very stubborn. And I'll add another category, marine scientists mm -hmm. are very, very stubborn about this. There's still an, an issue today, whether it was uh, a great white, a juvenile great white, now, great white can grow up to, uh, you know, uh, over 30 feet long and, uh, and weigh several tons in, in the, the largest form, but typically are, you know, they're closer to 20 feet long, you know, weighing, you know, several hundred pounds, six, seven hundred pounds. Uh, and the other type of shark is uh, the bull shark, which is also a man-eater. And some people think that the bull shark, well, the bull shark has a unique ability to move from saltwater environment to freshwater. Mm. In fact, they have bull sharks in the Mississippi River, the Mekong River in Vietnam, in Lake Nicaragua, uh, all over the world where a shark actually moves into freshwater. And now, some scientists will say that this must be a bull shark because uh, Matawan is like 11 miles from the open ocean. And here's where we've got to get go back to geography a little bit. In general, if we consider the open ocean, the Jersey, the open, the Jersey coast uh, from uh, Seabright all the way down to Cape May, that is 11 miles from Matawan, go via Route 36 going out to that way. But keep in mind, New Jersey has Raritan Bay, which indents into the center of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And Matawan, where this incident happened at the Wyckoff Dock, is only one and a half miles from Raritan Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. And at that time, uh, Matawan Creek was almost 20 feet deep at high tide. And it was a tidal, tidal, you know, creek. It wasn't exactly what we think of as a creek, as fresh water coming down from the mountains and things like this. This was a tidal creek. When the tide came in, uh, the depth of Matawan Creek went up. And also the salt level in Matawan Creek went up. So uh, that's where the confusion kind of comes in, that it's not exactly way inland. It's only a mile and a half in into a tidal creek. And those proponents will say that we think this was a juvenile great white. Now one thing that's interesting here is that uh, great whites and bull sharks don't look alike. <laughs> and many people actually saw the shark attack. They saw the shark. In fact, a great white has, has a, a back which can be black, dark brown, or slate gray, very dark. It has a white underbelly. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it, it, it also has a style of attack. Great whites actually tend to attack from the surface. They can actually lift their eyes up above the water and, and they can be looking over the surface to, before they attack someone. And they also have a fin coming up their back. And so if you see a shark with a fin moving and you see it on the surface, uh, that's usually a great white. 
Uh, a bull shark, uh, first of all, doesn't look like a gray white. It's bluish gray all over. It doesn't have a white underbelly and has a different type of attack. You'll never see a bull shark coming at you. They have a stealth attack. They'll come from down below and then they will attack you from down below. Like I said, both are man-eaters, but people actually saw the shark. They saw the white underbelly. They saw the fin. In fact, when Stanley Fisher was attacked down at the White Cup Dock, there were almost 300 people present. It's probably considered one of the most public shark attacks anywhere in world history, where all these people are watching a shark actually coming after a man like that. And these people saw a white underbelly. And in fact, uh, several people, the boys at the first shark attack said, uh, right before Lester hollered and screamed and went under, they, it looked, they, they saw it looked like an old weather-beaten board moving toward Lester on the surface, which, you know, they didn't really think of this as a shark because a shark coming into Matawan Creek, which was inland, they, they didn't, but it was this weather-beaten board coming and then the board went down and now Lester is lifted up out of the water, screaming, and, they, the, and the boys actually see the shark now, that they, they know what, what it is that they thought was a weather-beaten board moving toward Lester. So it's still, it's still up in the air. Some proponents will say what we think was a juvenile gray white, based on the evidence, and other people say that uh, we think it was uh, a bull shark, because even though it's a mile and a half inland, forgetting about the fact being uh, you know, almost 18, 20 feet deep, uh, it must be a bull shark if it's inland. And so the, the, those people say it's a bull shark, other people say a juvenile gray white. They're still arguing about it, about it today. Are uh, most historians and scientists in agreement as to how the shark got into Matawan Creek? Well, it's pretty easy in that with you've got an 18 foot, you know, uh, tidal river coming in. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are great whites and other sharks in, uh, in uh, Raritan Bay, right. the Atlantic Ocean. So it wouldn't be that unusual for... Uh, a large size shark to take a wrong turn and go up Matawan Creek when it's 20 feet deep and come inland and at high tide. And also, uh, one of the issues too is uh, large sharks tend to eat younger sharks. Mm -hmm. And that was a spawning ground for smaller sand sharks in Matawan Creek. So if a shark was kind of disrupted out of his normal eating habits, it could come up Matawan Creek not looking for dinner. In fact, they caught uh, a great white out in Raritan Bay uh, before this happened, a day before this happened, and they found small sharks in its belly. Oh, so it was wow. going in after young sharks. They did catch, going back to which type of shark, they did catch a great white, a seven and a half uh, foot great white, almost over 350 pounds. Uh, it was caught on July 14th, just a, a couple days after this. In fact, if you see the scene in Jaws, there were two men out there. Uh, one man, his name was uh, Michael Schlisher, who happened to be a lion tamer for the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He was out there with a friend. His name was uh, John Murphy. And they were out there, and they had about a 12-foot about boat, and they were looking for their, their uh, you know, breakfast. They had a dragnet going out in the back of the boat. And all of a sudden, they realized that something is in that dragnet with a fin. And remember the scene in Jaws where the boat is being pulled backward? Mm -hmm. It actually happened in Raritan Creek. Oh, wow. Where the, the shark in the dragnet started pulling this boat. This wasn't a huge boat like in the movie. It was pulling this boat backwards, and the bow was going up in, in the air. Because, or I'm sorry, the, the stern was going up in the air because the bow was being pulled down. And they had to come try to balance it to the ship, or the, the boat didn't sink. And they realized that there is a shark pulling us in backward. In fact, he said the shark was as long as the boat. That's how they viewed it at the time. They saw the shark and it's pulling the boat it's about as long as we are. And they start beating the shark with a broken oar that they happen to have uh, in the boat. And also there happened to be a larger boat nearby. So they're beating the shark with, uh, with a broken oar. And then they, they actually, the, the larger boat tows them into South Amboy, which now is, is going to kill the shark coming in. And they take the shark and they, they brought right on the, on the, on the wharf at the South Amboy, they, they, instead of putting vertically, they put it horizontally, they open up his belly, and when they get to the stomach and intestines, they actually find human remains oh. inside of the shark. They found bones that uh, you know were, were, were from a victim, also chunks of human flesh. Now, sharks can be scavengers and things like that, but the fact that you're finding a great white right outside the mouth of uh, Matawan Creek in Raritan Bay that happens to have human remains flesh remains and bone remains 
kind of indicates that this may have been, you know, the man-eater that had been in Madawan Creek. So that's because of that, uh, the, the tendency is kind of swayed a little bit more. In other words, if you were in a court of law, the prime suspect would be the Schlusser shark because it's found right outside the mouth of Merritt Red Bay and it's got human remains in it. Bones, bone fragments, which they thought at first, there happened to be a couple physicians there, and when they saw these bone fragments, they thought maybe the bone fragments might be from the shin of a boy, and they actually sent uh, a box full of, uh, in fact, Michael Schlitzer sent to the American Museum of Natural History a box of these remains with the bones in it, and uh, Dr. Frederick Lucas, who is head of, uh, who is an, an he especially was anatomy, and Dr. Uh, John Nichols, who is an ichthyologist, they examined, you know, this box of bones, and uh, Dr. Lucas said that, I think these are not from a boy. I think these are from a man's body, and probably a man's body from quite a while ago. And so they kind of threw some water on this idea that this was the killer shark, but uh, they didn't have the ability back in those days to do DNA testing or really go into scientific to prove this. It was just that uh, I think they were, were not real keen on saying that a great white was the shark coming into Madawan Creek because actually uh, 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 John Nichols, Dr. John Nichols and uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Cushman uh, Murphy had, of the, the Brooklyn Museum had written an article on sharks shortly before this saying that sharks aren't dangerous to humans oh. because they don't have the ability to bite through human bones mm -hmm. and also they don't come this far north in temperate waters north of Cape Hatteras so uh, it's very difficult for scientists now to take a 180 and say forget what I said that's gonna this is completely different so this took a while for this to digest but even the scientists there could not deny the fact that this was a shark attack. Mm -hmm. And they were still saying they didn't know what type of shark. And maybe it was a smaller shark that was kind of gnawing at and, and, and grinding at it, snapped it. They maybe didn't really cut it. It's by going at like a dog going after a bone. They were still weren't quite, quite willing to admit that they were literally, these, the legs from uh, Charles Bruder uh, had been cut off by a shark. But maybe a smaller shark had kind of went at it and went at it until it finally snapped, which kind of follows their theory. You know, sharks can't hurt people. There are sharks in the Atlantic Ocean, around the coast. But they, had, they actually said, the uh, American Museum of Natural History, when they found the Schlisher shark, for years they had not found a great white mm -hmm. in that whole area around New York, New Jersey. And now all of a sudden there is a, a shark uh, in, uh, in Raritan Bay that's... <laughs> seven and a half foot, uh, weighing almost 400 pounds. In fact, the, the descriptive, that, that description that uh, Captain Cottrell saw, because he first saw the shock going, going under the trolley bridge uh, over Matawan Creek, uh, near the mouth of Matawan Creek, and he was a sea captain. He looked down, he saw this form going underneath. It was almost, you know, eight, nine feet long, heading up toward Matawan. And this seven and a half foot shark that weighs several hundred pounds could actually fit his description, but it, like I said, they couldn't prove it with by scientific means at those days, so it, it's still up in the air, whether it was the Schlisher shark or whether it was another shark, whether it be another great white or another or, or a bull shark, and like I said, uh, marine scientists just like his, historians and, uh, and other scientists will, will argue something you know, ad finitum, right. and so we will never know for sure, but I, I, would, I would say, based on what I've read and, and my, my research, it, this, the prime suspect is the Schlusser shark, and that was a juvenile great white. What was done with the uh, remains of the Schlusser shark? This is interesting, because it's like the, the worst possible thing that could happen, happened. Uh, Michael Schlusser, who is, uh, he was a lion tamer for uh, Barnum and Betty Circus, mm -hmm. he was also a, a well-known taxidermist. Oh, so okay. now all of a sudden, other than just sending that one box of uh, bones up to the American Museum of Natural, they took the whole shark oh. in its body and the, the other remains, and now it's going to start to stink. And they wanted to do a taxidermy jobs on the shark. And so he did it. He basically went back to his, uh, his residence in New York, and, uh, and actually did uh, a taxidermy, this was actually a quick taxidermy, uh, tax, taxidermy job on this shark and, and preserve it now so people could look at it because he was going to display it. 
In fact, he did. He had a picture in front of the Bronx News in, in New York there of uh, uh, the, the Schlesier Shark. And then he decided he was going to go on a two-year tour. He was going to go uh, to, to the Far East, to Nagasaki in Japan, and show his shark. <laughs> he was going to make some money out of this. Right, so he went on tour. And so, yeah. in fact, uh, Dr. Lucas of the Museum of Natural History said that, could we please see this for scientific purposes? He said, well, gee, I'd love to do it, but I can't because I'm going to display this shark mm -hmm. for commercial purposes. Maybe later on down the road, I may let you look at this. That right now, what I sent you in that box, that's going to be it. In fact, there was, there was a communication that we, we saw from, uh, uh, from the American Museum of Natural History between Dr. John Nichols, the ichthyologist, to Dr. Frederick Lucas, uh, who is head of uh, this particular department, uh, and uh, he was the anatomist, that, in fact, Nichols says, I thought Schlischer would go this way. I thought he would say that after the request went due that, you know, I'm going to make some money out of this. Yeah. I'm going to take this on tour. And as to what ultimately happened to the remains, we don't know. Uh, if some people say that uh, maybe uh, they got the, the shark remains back to the American Museum of Natural History, but they didn't want to talk about it. Or if you see that scene in Indiana Jones, where there's this huge room with all these, maybe it's just lost. Yep. <laughs> they, they stuck it someplace, people forgot where they put it. So there's no nefarious plot. It's just that it just kind of lost the history. Mm -hmm. So we really don't know what really happened to that. But we do, in fact, uh, when uh, uh, Michael Schlischer was displaying this in front of the Bronx News, uh, Frederick Lucas, uh, John, Dr. John Nichols, and Dr. Robert Murphy from the Brooklyn Museum, they all went down to uh, the Bronx News and they, were, they actually identified the shark as a juvenile great white. Because uh, Dr. Nichols was the ichthyologist, he knows the different types of sharks. So they actually saw this, but they, they couldn't do their scientific, you know, autopsy or whatever, other than just looking at some of these bones and things. Uh, because uh, one thing that when, when the, part of a taxidermist job is uh, the, or the, or the remains of the animal, Freudian slip human, the remains of the animal, uh, you get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And when you're, the taxidermist now is going to add different fluids, so now you have a picture of the shark, but the remains aren't necessary. They stink. And in fact, why keep them? <laughs> get rid of them. You have the shark now. You've got the, you know, uh, the body that you built as a taxidermist. So that, that aspect to really prove this was lost to history. Scientists have also had realized that another way that this could be done is that sometimes if a shark bites you and if they could exhume the corpses, of all of these people, and now look at their corpses. If you could see bite wounds, you might be able to figure that back to the what was described with the Schlischer shark. But uh, laws in New Jersey, as far as exhuming bodies, uh, they'll do this if someone was murdered, but to do this for the sake of scientific curiosity, some states are more generous, they will do it. Other states aren't, and that's been, in fact, a lot of people are very hesitant to do this because to exhume a body for just out of, let's settle a, uh, you know, a historical question or our curiosity, that goes a little bit too far, you know, in respect to, respect to the dead and family members and things like that, if it could be done. So it's still, it's still technically a mystery. Mm. Going back to Matawan following sure. the shark attacks, um, how did the residents of Matawan react to the shark attacks? Okay. They were absolutely devastated. This was, the example I'll throw out, this was the 9-11 to the people of Matawan in 1916 at that time. They'd lived, a, you know, kind of an idyllic type life. They were all, only 1,500 people here. They all knew each other. They were all, it's a, it's a nice place to live. They were very friendly. They were looked out for each other. And now two, two of the residents have been killed by a shark of all things. Mm -hmm. In fact, this was very strange. In fact, Stanley Fisher's parents Stanley had a sister, Augusta, who had married, uh, you know, a man uh, who was now living in Minnesota, Arthur Nichols, and uh, Augusta had moved uh, to Minnesota. And Stanley's parents weren't in Matawan at the time of the shark attack. They're visiting Augusta over in Minneapolis. And the acting mayor, here's another funny story, the acting mayor of Matawan, his name was Eris Henderson, he was called the acting mayor because he wasn't the elected mayor of Matawan. He was head of the town council. And while the mayor wasn't there, he was acting as mayor. The actual mayor of Matawan, his name was uh, William Sutphin, uh, was also a sergeant in uh, 
uh, the New Jersey National Guard in a cavalry troop. And he was actually chasing Pancho Villa oh, <laughs> at that time yeah. down along the Mexican border when this happened right at that time. And so the, everything was referred to as the acting mayor of Madeline, Eris Henderson. Well, the, the Fishers didn't know about this. In fact, when this first happened, uh, Eris Henderson telegraphed the Fishers that Stanley has had an accident and it's rather serious. You better come back to Madawan. And they decided, okay, we're going to go back to Madawan, not saying what happened. And then a later telegram was sent to them at 10 p.m. saying that Stanley has died from his wounds and you, you better come to Madawan quickly now. So they were already planning to come to Madawan. But they couldn't understand this. Stanley was a you know, 24 year old guy, very healthy, very strong individual. How could he die? What could happen to him? You know, it had no mention whatsoever of a shark. So they're coming back uh, by way. There's, uh, there's uh, the Mr. and Mrs. or Captain and Mrs. Fisher and Augusta Nichols with her young son uh, is coming on the way back. And the worst thing in the possible world could happen. And in fact, she happened to be pregnant with their second child. And they're, they're not changing trains in Chicago. And they see a headline from the Chicago Tribune that a man and boy are fatally attacked in Matawan, New Jersey oh, by a shark. That's how they found out what, and his, his name is Stanley Fisher. That's how they found out how their son died, by reading a newspaper of, uh, of a shark attack in Matawan. In fact, I, uh, I just met uh, the, the nephew, grand nephew of uh, Stanley Fisher. His name is uh, John Nichols, who is, uh, he was a, he's a retired professor at Penn State, out of State College, PA. And he said that his father, uh, was five years old at the time. His father told him the story. He remembers that when Captain Fisher saw that headline of the Chicago Tribune while they're changing trains and how they reacted, how horrible they felt when they found out that their son was killed in a shark attack. That was the first time they found out. And you can, I, I always tell, you know, whenever I do a, a talk on the shark attack, you could imagine what that ride back to Matawan was like, right. knowing that your son now, first of all, has died, but it died of a shark attack. And to Captain Fisher, all of this is going through his mind. He's a sea captain. In fact, he was the commodore of the Savannah Steamship Line, which goes from New York to Savannah. And he had just retired just a short time before this. He couldn't understand. How could a shark come into Matawan Creek and attack three people? It just was mind-boggling. And that's what they came, came back to. And the town, like I said, was devastated. And in fact, when Stanley had first gone down to recover, he had found Lester's body. He was bringing Lester's body up, that he was attacked by the shark. And when that happened, he, the shark's, or the body slipped from him because now he was attacked. And uh, when Stanley was taken down uh, to, to Long Branch, Monmouth Memorial Hospital, that he dies, Lester's body is still the bottom of Matawan Creek. There was a, a major uh, rainstorm that came in the following day. That happened on... Uh, uh, April 12th, the following day was April 13th, and they're still looking for, for Lester's body in this heavy rainstorm, and then his body surfaces the early in the morning, at about 5.30 in the morning on uh, uh, July 14th, and his body is found, it's completely mangled, his legs are tattered, been bitten off, his internal organs have been ravaged. The only thing remaining was his face. His face wasn't attacked. But an engineer walking to work along the tracks nearby the train trestle by, by the Madeline Ranger uh, Railroad Station saw this body bobbing up and down, picked the body up, and the, the parents came and identified the body. They took it to the Aerosmith Brothers Funeral Parlor. And, uh, and now, once this happens, John Nichols has decided to take a trip to Madawan. You know, the ichthyologist from the American Museum of Natural History is trying to find out about some of these things that have happened. Uh, he, and uh, he finds that now they've discovered uh, Lester's body, and Stanley has already been died. Has died. He realizes now, and he, he lets Doctor uh, uh, Lucas know that this is a shark attack. We're not talking about sea turtles. We're not talking about anything like that. This is an actual shark attack. We've been now we're trying to determine what type of shark. But uh, the the townspeople went crazy. Uh, now they were looking for revenge. They, they wanted to kill the shark. They had taken two of their townspeople. So all, all the night of the, uh, July 12th and the day, and, and actually the night of uh, July 13th, they're setting off dynamite. And they're down there with rifles. They're shooting into Matawan Creek, trying to, to, you know, to locate the shark. And also they thought the dynamite raised Lester's body. 
They were still trying, they're afraid that the shark would take the body back out to Merritt Bay and they never see it again. They were still trying. Stanley Fisher had given his life to try to recover this body. The people of Madelon wanted to recover it. So they were really, you know, loaded for bear. And then, less, then later they, they find Lester's body. And, uh, and, and after the Schlisher shark is, this is interesting, after the Schlisher shark is killed on uh, July 14th, there are no more shark attacks. And there had been the, the, you know, the, the five attacks within 12 days from July 1st to July 12th. After the Schlisher shark is captured and killed, no more shark attacks after that. So that even, if you were in a court of law, they would say that the prime suspect really is the culprit here. But like I said, some scientists will still argue back and forth. And it's still, you know, up in the air. But that, the, the town, like I said, was a very close-knit group. They were devastated. And it, it took a while for them, you know, to get back into some semblance of order because it, it really was their 9-11. Where are uh, Lester Stilwell and Stanley Fisher buried? They are buried uh, in Rose Hill Cemetery. And what's interesting is that I do cemetery tours out there. And that's why I kind of got interested in is even more about Stanley and writing the book about Stanley. Because many people, when I would, I would talk about Stanley Lester, I, I especially like this when uh, children and young adults would come to me. They say, can you tell us some more about that brave young man, Stanley Fisher? <laughs> that's what my book is about. I'm collecting all these things over the year. I'm telling these people who are interested what he was like. Because everything up to that time had not dealt with his his private life or his feelings or his personality. And that's what my book deals with. But uh, they're both buried out at Rose Hill Cemetery. I also mentioned in my book that uh, of all these questions I get about Lester Stillwell and Stanley Fisher, uh, the two graves, now they're on a satellite. You can come from New Zealand and the satellite will direct you right to Lester Stillwell's grave and Stanley Fisher's grave because people all over the world are interested in this. And People leave little mementos, little gifts behind. And if you go out to, to Lester's grave or Stanley's grave, uh, Lester's gifts include baseball gloves, toys, stuffed animals, anything that applies to a young person, a young boy. Stanley's gifts are a little bit different. Uh, they are characteristics representative of heroism, like American flags, medals for heroism, things that things signify manhood, and uh, I, I kind of made, made a little joke of this in my, my book. I said, I see all of these things. And we don't, we leave them there. We straighten them up, but we don't take them away. We don't clean up and throw them away, certainly. And uh, I kind of make a joke and I say, I'm sure the Lester and Stanley are smiling when they see these admiring visitors coming to their graves. You're paying them genuine respect. Right, right. These people who aren't even from Matawan, probably not even from New Jersey, some of them not even from the country that this story has carried that type of uh, effect that uh, even the spirits, uh, I think, realize what's happening and, and they're very thankful for people who come and show their respect. It's amazing people go on uh, pilgrimages almost oh, to yeah. come see them. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've had emails from all over the place. I go on internet radio shows and I get questions from all over the world. You think this isn't just a Monmouth County or a New Jersey or an East Coast type thing. This is a world event mm -hmm. because uh, we've had movie companies from the United States, uh, United Kingdom, uh, Republic of South Africa, <laughs> Canada making movies wow. on this. I was a consultant to a Canadian movie company making a movie on the, the shark attack. So people know about this. They've read documentaries, TV shows. And when Shark Week comes up every year, they talk about the Madawan shark attack that by Captain Cottrell seeing the shark, Stanley Fisher, you know, losing his life, recovering Lester's body. And this is still going on. People are fascinated by this. And there's something about it, about when you really get into it, that it lives on. Mm -hmm. And the only, th the main reason I wrote my book is uh, that when it lives on, I want people to, uh, in addition to the drama and uh, uh, the goriness and the shark attacks, I want them to see another side that they were, I, in fact, I called one, one of my chapters called The Heroes of the Shark Attack. I talked about eight people who were performed very heroically on that day. Six of them were in the water, knowing a shark was there. And if anybody remembers this 100 years later, it's not just because it's based on Jaws or anything like that. It's the fact that there were eight people who went above and beyond what anyone would be expected to do for someone that they knew and they cared about in their town. That's the part that should be remembered. Right, right. 
Are there any buildings in Madawan today that are connected to the shark attack? Uh, the one, probably the most prominent building that's uh, connected to the shark attack is the, the railroad station. Uh, if you come to Madawan and you see this old green railroad station, that is the actual railroad station that was there in 1916. It's still there. It's changed a little bit. There used to be a canopy over around the side of it. They've taken the canopy off, but that is still there. Now, New Jersey Transit owns it and, and has it as a storage building. But if you want to see the, the, the place where Stanley Fisher left in 1916, it's still there. Uh, we also have Stanley Fisher's house is still the actual house is still in existence in Madawan. You can see that. Uh, you can uh, you can also see the location where Lester Stillwell's house was. We're not 100% sure that it hasn't been re remodeled or changed, but it is the location on Church Street where he lived and where his funeral was. You can actually see the funeral parlor that Stanley Fisher was buried from back in 1916. That building is still in existence. If you go to Rose Hill Cemetery, you can actually see the graves. Like I say, we have people coming from all over the place seeing this. So uh, to answer your question, yes, there are, are some sites. In fact, we've designed a trolley tour uh, going around Madawan showing the sites. Some of them, they're, they're still there. Some of them have been demolished over the years. We'll show you the site where it was and we'll have pictures. In fact, we developed uh, a, a tour guide, a self-guided tour. Whether you go on the tour or not, you can actually come to Madawan and you can visit these places and have, you know, we can give you a tour guide and you can see these space, and we have a little narrative about what happened at each place and how it relates to the shark attack. In fact, we have 21 stops on our, uh, our trolley tour. And, uh, the, and people, in fact, uh, we've been uh, you know, advertising this and we, we opened up uh, you know, for people coming from a distance if you wanna buy uh, a, a, an advanced ticket for the trolley tours. Our trolley tour tickets are going unbelievably fast. Mm -hmm. That people from all over the place want to go on the tour. And we mentioned too that if you don't manage to make it on that particular trolley tour, we'll have a self-guided tour for you. So you will be able to see, if you come to Madden you will be able to see all of this on your own be able to hear the story and everything one way or another. And if you come to Madawan uh, next year or the year after that, we'll also have the guide that we divide, or the tour that we divided, you can take it anytime. It's not just tied into this uh, 100th anniversary. So what we're trying to point out, and we will have a monument now where you can see it's a, it's a quite significant monument. It's, it's, a, it's a granite slab that's about six feet by five feet. The thing's huge. And uh, We've been very, very careful that it's done very tastefully. There's no sensationalism. There's no shark on the monument. It's, it's in reverence to the two, two Madawan residents who died that day, Lester Stillwell and Stanley Fisher. We have their images engraved in granite uh, on the tombstone or on the memorial. And we also have that, the site where it happened. Uh, the Wyckoff Dock is engraved there. And we have wordings uh, about what happened, but it's, it's very, very tastefully done and uh, explaining who it was, what happened, who it was, and also the legacy. The fact that the people of Matawan, you know, displayed exceptional courage that day. And it has been the source for countless uh, documentaries, TV programs, and movies, and things like that. So that is part of the legacy, but the main thing we're proud of is how brave people were, and how they cared about each other. And so if you do come to Matawan, and you, you happen to miss our event, you can still go through and see these things at any time. It would be, we'd be happy to share this with you. Along with the, uh, the tours and the monument, um, are there any other events planned to yes. commemorate the 100th anniversary? Yes, we've got events planned. In fact, the New Jersey Aquarium is, is actually bringing up a live uh, touchable shark at, at this event. And I have, I've listed some of these things for you there. Uh, we've got other groups coming and talking about shark conservation. And I just want to mention, I'm, I happen to be an animal lover, and I'm also a conservationist. So it, you can, you can know, learn about this and uh, try to preserve sharks. Remember, a, a shark is an animal. And sometimes when human beings and wildlife come together, there can be some unpleasant circumstances, but that doesn't mean that we want to kill sharks. Right. It means we, we need to learn a little bit about what happened and we try to avoid some of these things. But we will be having a whole host of things during the week like that. We're gonna have our, we've had high, our high school students, other residents in, in town have uh, contributed uh, art objects, some beautiful paintings that will be on display, uh, you know, uh, in the community center. I'll be doing a full presentation 
uh, an in-depth pre historical presentation uh, the night of uh, July 16th, right before we dedicate the monument. And then the monument will be dedicated uh, on Sunday, July 17th. And we have relatives from the Fisher family, about a, about a dozen coming in from all over the place, from Minnesota, from the D.C. area, uh, from uh, State College, Pennsylvania, and they're, they're coming together and uh, they want to be part of this. We'll actually have them unveil the monument. Wow. And wow. Uh, so we want this to be something that's memorable, but we've been very, very careful to do it in a tasteful way because there are people who died and we have a great deal of respect and we will, will not do anything that will minimize or compromise the fact that uh, there were people who, who died. But uh, we also, we point out that when you come here, uh, you're allowed to smile. Uh, if you hear something amusing, you're allowed to laugh. <laughs> and that we're not going to come here and uh, you know act like a bunch of prudes for it's a nine day event from uh, July 9th through July 17th. So you will see things. We have an ice cream social, a 1916s ice cream social with people in costumes. Uh, so there are a lot of the, a lot of the things that will, will be of interest. There'll be music from that era, barbershop quartets. All of these different things will be pertaining that you. Some things will be entertaining, some things will be of a more reverent nature, but uh, we, we want people to come to Madeline and enjoy it. And like I said, we don't use the word celebration because it is not celebrating the mm -hmm. fact, but we also recognize this is history and that it's an important part of history. And now we're recognizing it in a tasteful way that people who've read the books, who want to come to Madawan and see these things, we're now providing an opportunity them to learn about these things in a tasteful way so it's uh, like I said it's not an either-or situation and it, it's been a kind of a kind of a, a long process because uh, there have been people in town who are just hundred percent against mm -hmm. doing anything like this that's ghoulish and it's you know it, it's not honoring the dead uh, but over the last ten years the balance has changed most people in that town are looking at this in a different way this is history we're not going to glorify anything, but we can't ignore history. We can learn from it, and we can certainly honor things that have been done. And that, that in no way is disrespecting the people who died. In fact, it's showing the highest respect. And we're, we've been very, very careful to do it the right way. Al, you are the author of the new book, Stanley Fisher, Shark Attack Hero of a Bygone Age. Is there a particular part of the book that you enjoyed researching or writing? Well, the one thing that uh, I, I've, over, oh, over several decades, I, I've researched this, and I've, I've been playing detective. And whenever, whenever you play detective, it's kind of fun when you discover things you have. One thing that really excited me was that it happened almost, in a, in a sense, coincidence. I'm also the, the vice president of the Rose Hill Cemetery Company. I'm the, the cemetery historian, too. And we had a call right after Hurricane Sandy in... Uh, in 2012, because that actually, for those who are not from the area, devastated this whole section of New Jersey. And the call came in from Minnesota, and they wanted to know if there was any problem, especially with Stanley Fisher's grave. And I said, but, well, by the way, I'm the, I'm the historian. I, I'm also, uh, you know, the officer. And I said, I've just been there recently, and no damage was done to the stones or to the Fisher family, thing like that. And I found out that I was speaking to Stanley Fisher's niece. Wow. She was... 95 years old, <laughs> and uh, she was. She wanted to continue to watch out for things. Her mother was Sandy Fisher's sister. She had, you know, done this up until that she passed away in 1967, and her daughter was continuing to do this. Would send flowers to to Sandy's grave, and uh, in fact, we were joking. She, uh, I told her some things about Stanley you know, that she didn't know about. And about, he had some things about her parents. She told me things about Stanley that I didn't know about, personal things about Stanley. And it was a great, it was like if you're a baseball fan and uh, you have like having lunch with Mickey Mantle. Right, or right. Or Babe Ruth. <laughs> for me, having a research this for years, not being able to talk to, you know, a blood relative, the niece of Stanley Fisher. And she didn't, in fact, her mother was pregnant with her at the time of the shark attack, July 12th. She was born the first few days in January of 1917. So she had never actually met Stanley. Her mother, though, had she was very, very close to Stanley. They were a very tight-knit family. And her mother had told her stories about her uncle, uncle Stanley. We compared notes like that. 
And like I said, I spoke to her for about a half an hour, and I was so excited. I mean, I, I was, like you can imagine, a little, a little kid. That's how I felt. And uh, I found out information, and she said, I'd like, I'd like to come meet you and come, come to Mass. I mentioned I do the cemetery tours, and we honor Stanley uh, during these tours, and I'll continue to do this. And uh, she said, I'd like to come to Matawan and meet you. I'd like to visit Stanley's grave and the, the graves of my grandparents right at Rosal Cemetery. But it was so cute. She said, I'm 95 years old, and I don't get around much. And, I mean, and during our conversation, she was sharp as a, you know, as, as a whip. She was on, on the ball after 95 years. She was also, you know, a, a concert uh, uh, pianist <laughs> who actually performed the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra. I mean, it's a very talented family. Right. And very prominent out in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, in cultural affairs. But she said that I, I don't think I, I may not be able to make, make it because I'm 95 years old. Then I found out after that, her, uh, her son, uh, Dr. Richard Anderson, sent me a letter saying that his mother had passed away at age 96 and that he wanted to continue on. Uh, you know, if, if we'd sent uh, the Roseville Cemetery newsletter to, her name's Peggy, Peggy Anderson, could you please have the Roseville newsletter sent to me? You know, in, instead, I'm the son of, of Peggy. And I said, we would be delighted to. And I said, I'm absolutely thrilled that the Anderson family is carrying on this tradition to the next generation. And, uh, it, it, but I would say that was one of the most exciting things. And one of the things that really thrilled me is like I mentioned, you know, when, when young people are interested in this, kids and young people approach me. And what I really love is when I see these little gifts that are left at the cemetery, mm -hmm. it kind of breaks my heart. I, I, like I said, I could see these, I could see standing Lesser smiling going this. The people come to this grave and they want Lester and Stanley to know we brought you a gift and how we recognize the fact about your, your sacrifice, your loss, 100 years ago, and we want this for you. That is the part that excites me the most. And the more that I've learned about Stanley Fisher over, you know, uh, back since, since the 1970s, really, that uh, everything that I've learned that I put into my book reinforces the fact the things that I, my, my early impressions of him, that he was an, really an exceptional young man, mm -hmm. exceptional man who really cared about others, was very talented, and it was so important that uh, he was, his last words were about Lester Stilwell, not about his misfortune, but about Lester Stilwell and the values that he had. That's the exciting part to me because it shows from a, a bygone age. I also, in my book, bring in uh, uh, in fact, one of my chapters is entitled Stanley, uh, Stanley's Values Today. <laughs> I say if Stanley Fisher, Fisher came back, you know, to, you know, 2016, visited Matawan and used the internet, used, you know, listen to talk radio, watch TV, what would he think? And I, I bring up that uh, some of his values, especially the idea of, uh, of personal sacrifice and people having courage uh, under very extreme circumstances, I bring up what happened in 9-11 in my book, that uh, there were people there, the last thing they knew they were going to die. Mm -hmm. They were in the doomed planes. These relatives called home to say for one last time, I love you. And sometimes that final message was said to an answering machine. Right. And uh, people who were firefighters were streaming up the stairs at the World Trade Center and other people were streaming down to safety. And uh, I'll never forget the scenes of men and women jumping off the towers with the flames behind them, holding hands, jumping to the desk, knowing they were dying. And I, I bring that out and I say, all these people realize what Stanley Fisher did 100 years ago, and yes, this still happens today. It's not just something, an old Victorian thing that happened a long, long time ago. People experience this today. And that's the good thing about human nature, is that uh, there is something in us. Everybody thinks that the strongest, uh, you know, uh, tendency you have is self-preservation. Mm -hmm. Everything else kind of goes by the wayside when it comes to whether you're going to live or die. And there's another emotion in human beings that is just as strong as self-preservation. This happens to when you talk to the Medal of Honor winners and the people who have given their lives, uh, you know, to save their friends. This happens to today in the 21st century. It's not just a, a, a thing like that. And if you look around you, there are people 
that, you know, whenever they see a, a car burning by the roadside, people pull over. And these are not professionals. These are not rescuers or police or firemen. And they will go and they will yank on the door to try to take someone out of a burning car. They don't even know the person. And they're risking their lives. Every second they're there, that car could blow up and they would lose their life. They still do it. They still do it today, 100 years later. And that's one of the good things that uh, some of the things we saw that were demonstrated back in then, they're still here with us today. And, then, and back in those days, uh, like any place else in history, there have been people who've been selfish and uh, only cared about themselves, but there's, there's another side of people, a good side that people have, not, even, to the, even to the extent of self-sacrifice. They've given their lives for other people, and that still happens today. And that's that's one of the things that makes me feel good about humanity. Mm -hmm. And that that thing hasn't. Uh, you can be cynical about what the way the world is, but that tendency still hasn't left us. It's still part of us as human beings, and I, I'm glad for it. Very well said, Al. <laughs> <laughs> where where can my listeners purchase your book? Okay, what they can do is uh, I mentioned on that they can contact us at. Uh, uh, Madawan Historical, I think it's .gov. On uh, I can give you the the exact. Uh, it is it is our email address, or if you go to our website, uh, MadawanHistoricalSociety.org, it will give information there of how you can purchase the book. I also want to mention that uh, I'm donating 100% of the proceeds to this book to the Madawan Historical Society, wow. preserving history. I'm not I'm not keeping one cent of this. So if the book turns out well, it, it will benefit history. I didn't write this. Uh, I've been working on it for years and years and years. I didn't write this uh, to make money. I, I, I did this for love of history. Mm -hmm. And so if you, uh, if you contact us and you, uh, and you, you send us a check or you, you purchase one of my books, I want you to know that that money is going to the preservation of history. And that's the way I want it to be. And... Uh, it might be good for your, your, your listeners to know that, that, uh, that we, I know you feel this way and I, we've spoken many times that we love history right? and it's very, very important to try to learn from it. And that's something I wanted my, my book to be is something that people could enjoy and, uh, learn from. And, uh, like I said, uh, if they have a, a different view of the Madeline shark attack or they have a very different view of human nature after reading my book, that's all the reward I want is that you've enjoyed it, or you've, you've learned something from it, or you feel good about yourself. I, the book was written in a sense. I, you know, I, I, I'm 70 years old, and I've had a long life, and uh, uh, I, 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 I've got to admit, I am a sentimental person. So when I look at things, and I look at self-sacrifice and things like that, it has an impact on me. I, I can't just be 100% objective and forget about these things, mm -hmm. or, or you're not human. And, and like I said, this was one thing I wanted to do during the course of my life, that uh, I'm very happy that I've been able to accomplish this. And uh, I've had some severe medical issues in my life. And I don't know, when I wake up in the morning, I don't know whether I'm going to wake up tomorrow or not. And I live with that. And I'm just very happy that I was able to finish the book, you know, before anything happened to me. We're all very happy that you finished the book as well, Al. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say to my listeners? Well, the one thing that uh, that I, I would always tell, I was a history teacher, and uh, I've been a history buff my whole life. I would always say that uh, the, one of the greatest things in my life is when I can talk to a young person, and I make the joke about if you catch the history buff, <laughs> you'll never be bored for the rest of your life. That if, I, if I speak to a young person and they get excited about history and now they read it for what it really is, about stories about human beings and they enjoy it and it fulfills their life, that's the greatest thing that I could do as, uh, as a teacher or as, as an author, historian. That's the thing that you know, makes me get up in the morning that I, I want to continue to do. Al, thank you very much for sitting down with me this afternoon. If you have a history event that you would like promoted on my blog and podcast, please contact me via Twitter, Facebook, or on my blog. I'll be happy to promote your event free of charge. That does it for the eighth episode of the Matt Ward History Experience. The Matt Ward History Experience is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. 
Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. Go to onestonerecording.com slash mwhistory and receive 10% off of your first session. I want to thank my guest Al Savalin and you, the listeners. Al can be reached via the Matawan Historical Society website and Facebook page. His new book, Stanley Fisher, Shark Attack Hero of a Bygone Age, can be purchased through the Matawan Historical Society. The links to these sites are posted on my blog. Last, but certainly not least, I want to thank my good friend Peter Lloyd at One Stone Recording and Mastering for providing tech support for this episode. I can be reached on the blog, the Matt Ward History Experience, at mwhistoryexperience.com, on Twitter, at RevWarBuff23, or on my Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Matt Ward, and this is the Matt Ward History Experience.